0: Hello and welcome to Culture, Sex, Relationships with me, Justin Hancock. Today's episode is an interview with Corey Cascalera about their paper about curative kink, so the possibilities for BDSM to have a therapeutic element. Um, This is part of a two-parter. I found Corey and their colleagues uh, work when I was researching a piece uh, from someone who wrote to me uh, asking about this kind of thing. That's going to be an, just an episode, which will be the next episode that comes out. Uh, but I thought I'd get Corey on because I really wanted to talk about this paper. And it's really interesting about how in the right context, which is very, very important, where there is a cultural context of healing, there is a possibility for kink to have these kind of therapeutic effects. Uh, even though kink isn't, might not be therapy, it might have a therapeutic effect. And so... As you'll hear in this episode, uh, doing this kind of doing some in-depth work with some participants of kink, uh, who were willing to talk about this and were were, had understood their experiences in this way, it's about understanding what kink might do in those contexts. So, this is not a prescription for anyone to go out and do kink. Okay, we are very definitely not saying that you should do this if you have survived, if you're a survivor of sexual harm, trauma, violence. Uh, or uh, any kind of abuse. We're not saying you should get de- get definitely go out and try this. Okay, all the paper does is to say, in the context where, uh, in the right context, this is what kink might do. Okay, uh, and so yeah, and we it's very nuanced, very interesting conversation. Hope you enjoy it. Um, as with all culture, sex, relationships episodes, these are for adults. I don't usually explain this very often, but. These are for adults, uh, and they're for people who have, you know, quite a deep interest in culture, sex, and relationships. Uh, you know, they're quite technical, in-depth episodes, um, but they are for adults. And that's just in case anyone from who is a fan of the Daily Mail is listening. Sadly, the Daily Mail. Um, wrote an extremely critical piece about me and my work for my website for young people where they were very critical about me um, being trans inclusive and also uh, talking about rough sex and kink um, even though young people asked me about that. Um, This is the first time I'm saying anything publicly about it. I'm not even going to say anything else about it but if you think it's um, that sex education for young people is important uh, you might want to showing some support and some solidarity by heading over to my Patreon for that project which is patreon.com forward slash Bish UK if you can afford a quid a month to help me keep that project going that would be great that's the only funding I get for it um, anyway speaking of uh, Patreons and support I also have a Patreon for this show patreon.com forward slash culture sex relationships where patrons get early access to all these shows and support the shows and I do various uh, readings and extras too so Uh, Please do feel free to head over there if you can. Okay, on with the show. Bye. Uh, Corey, welcome so much to, uh, welcome so much for an odd intro. Welcome to Culture Sex Relationships. Thanks so much for joining uh, me today. Yeah, happy to be here. Thanks for having me. So we're talking about your really, really interesting paper, uh, Curative Kink, Survivors of Early Abuse Transform Trauma Through BDSM. Uh, and you co-wrote this, didn't you? So could you uh, um, shout, give shout outs to your co-authors as well? That'd be great.
1: Yeah, sure. Yeah. So um, I'm the lead author on the paper, but I collaborated with Ellen Ijabor, Elena Salkowitz. Uh, they're both students, doctoral students at the time with me at New Mexico State University. Uh, Tracy Hitter was our faculty advisor, a licensed psychologist, and then Allison Boyce was an undergraduate student. Um, also in our department of counseling and educational psychology
0: hmm. it sounds like i mean just it 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 looks like it's quite a big piece of work it looks like it, it it might have taken quite a while but it wasn't a big piece of work just um i
1: guess some time you know uh, tracy and elena first kind of came up with the idea right. uh, tracy originally looked at uh, how people change the way they think about sex women specifically hmm. once they've survived trauma or rape or something like that and so Tracy was kind of interested in this and Elena brought the BDSM piece and they brought me in to kind of get the project off the ground Mm. and so it was it took us maybe two years over you know from start to submission yeah (laughs)
0: um yeah yeah I mean yeah gosh um that does sound like a big project. So I guess just to talk a bit more about the context as well, I guess that there, there has been an increasing kind of, um, I guess, uh, an increasing kind of interest in some of, I guess, what might be termed kind of the positive aspects of BDSM or the uh, mm-hmm. or, or what BDSM might bring and also what it might do. And so it's in that context, isn't it, that that, that this paper kind of sits...
1: Yeah, so this paper is coming at a time when there is a lot of pushback, rightfully so, from academics who are interested in diverse sexualities and community members in the BDSM community who are tired of being framed in this like perversion type of narrative that people who are into BDSM are, you know, criminals or they're perverted. And it's, there's a lot of pushback and a lot of research showing that, Hey, actually there's a lot of benefit to kink. You know, um, not only does it kind of physically get our endorphins going that can help us process pain in a new way, but a lot of people will think of kink as a, one of the best communities they've ever been in and ways to connect to spirituality, ways to uh, cope with neurological disorders even you know people who are neurodiverse have found benefit from kink and so there's a lot of research and a lot of different domains that's showing um that's supporting building evidence for for some people kink is actually um really helpful
0: yeah um and throughout the paper you cite um my former co-host of this show meg john barker so um, <laughs> as soon as you see meg john being cited in a paper you think all oh, right okay it's gonna be this is my kind of paper. So, um, yeah. So first you address this straight off the bat. Um, and it is something that I think it's a question where that gets a lot of people kind of a bit stuck and it's probably the wrong question, but let's, let's address it because it's probably in the minds of many of our listeners already. So if we, if we can, so we're talking about some of the, the therapeutic benefits that people who take part in BDSM, um, might gain but can we just address this thing about um you know does uh, have does having experienced uh childhood or even early adulthood sexual trauma or sexual abuse or abuse of any kinds does that in any way like cause people to 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 engage in kink and bdsm or is that is it a, an association or a correlation and what do we say about that and what do we you know what's the right take about this basically
1: yeah it's a great question you know
0: kind of the tech
1: the short answer is no there's no causation um the long answer is there's no there's not enough evidence to suggest that people everybody who's in to bdsm who ends up practicing bdsm have also been traumatized you know there's there's some studies that come out that show that they're the that association, right? That correlation is high in that sample, but that's just one sample. But there's a really convincing study in Australia that was uh, among thousands and thousands of people that found no correlation between trauma and kink. So we don't have evidence that people who are traumatized end up in kink or vice versa, Mm -hmm. but we do know that there are some people who happen to be into kink that also went through trauma. So, this paper is really looking at that's that really small subset of people. Sure.
0: And of course, there'll be many people who engage in kink who haven't been traumatized. Many people who don't engage yes. in kink who have been traumatized. Um, and also, it, it is this thing that we often get in sex education, where it is the minoritized? Um, although kink is probably practiced by a majority of people, and some, in some depending on how we look at it, but where yes. the minoritized group always gets the uh, the scrutiny, the, those questions of, well, how has this happened? Um, and then even when we start to address that, we, we reinforce the default, we reinforce the normative idea of, it's true, this is a normal kind of sex, this is not a normal kind of sex. Right, so, right. Um, right. Uh, yeah, so thanks for addressing that. It's really useful. Um, so with this small subset of people who... so can we talk about, I usually skip over the methods, um, whenever I'm reading an academic paper, because I'm like, I don't get it, but I found that this really important. So let's talk about how you found, um, the participants for the study and, and kind of the kinds of, the kinds of things that they were reporting in there when you, when you were finding them and, and how you boiled it down to this number of people.
1: Yeah, that's a great question. You know, thanks for asking it, um, Justin. So the, Basically, what we did is we, we created some recruitment materials and we had um, national experts in kink kind of review our materials to see if they were culturally inclusive and would mm-hmm. people could, could not be offended by it. Sorry if you hear my nephew in the background. Uh, <laughs> and um, so, but we really wanted to make sure that people were getting we're in a safe place because we know from research just in general therapy research that talking about trauma can be re-traumatizing for Mm. some folks. Mm. And because we had people from all over the world, you know, Greece, Austria, the United States, United Kingdom, we needed to have some kind of safety mechanism in place. So what that meant was, you know, obviously people were over the age of 18 um, and then we wanted them to have experienced abuse and participating kink since that was like the substantive part of our study, mm-hmm. but they also had to have, um, access to a mental health professional and a reliable support system because just in case this mm-hmm. interview was, um, triggering for them, we wanted to make sure they got the help they needed and could get it immediately. because um, mm-hmm. there's not much we can do when we're doing these interviews over zoom. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and mostly we recruited from like FetLife and community, uh, different types of community organizations on Reddit, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. and so we're really grateful to the moderators who allowed us to, be, to do that.
0: Yeah. And so you're asking uh, for people to come forward who have reported experiencing uh, abuse, was it below the age of 18? Um, yeah, before yeah. 18 years old. Yeah. Um, and that they, and that then, and that now, um, so they practice kink uh, uh, or BDSM. And I kind of use those terms in- interchangeably. Is that something you do? It's that in fine. The yeah, yeah. Um,
1: I typically call it, you know, think
0: overall. Yeah, uh, but people use it interchangeably. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and so and so, it's a qualitative study, isn't it? So you're kind of so you're you you were doing interviews to kind of to draw out experiences to draw out some common themes.
1: Yeah. So we interviewed 20 people and we chose 20 because at that, that number, I mean, these interviews are really long. Some of them are, they're the shortest ones, like 45 minutes, the longest ones, an hour and a half. And you get a lot of data by talking. Like if we were to transcribe this interview between us, we'd have pages and pages of data. And so 20 is a number that once you get to 20, you kind of, it's something in qualitative research called saturation. Mm -hmm. And that just means that you don't find any more themes. You don't find anything new by interviewing more people Mm -hmm. um, or nothing substantially new. So Mm -hmm. once we got to 20, that's when we, that was kind of our cutoff point so that we could get enough data to at least start to build a model of, what trauma recovery might look like for some people who are into kink
0: and of course you're getting a lot of rich detail i suppose as well aren't yes. you? That it must be really difficult to but also this is the kind of research that kind of most interests me uh dear listener you might remember my interview with joy dr joy townsend about her paper her um phd her sexual self where we talked about sexual subjectivities very similar kind of thing you know she interviewed a small number of people and then Vast reams of data (laughs) come out of all these sexual stories, and um, actually, kink and BDSM came up in that paper about how young young women are making sense of their um, their certainly their relationship to consent and agency as well. So, Mm. lots of nice overlaps here as well. but also just also to stick with the kind of methods a uh, really interesting point that I kind of I don't know selfishly want to find out more about is that you're talking about how you're approaching this from like a, a sex positive perspective but also um, you were all of all of you as authors were were also writing reflexive accounts of your of your own experience with this. Could you mm-hmm. tell me a bit about that?
1: Yeah, so reflexivity is this idea that. When you are engaging in qualitative work, you want to kind of manage your assumptions, biases, and reactions Mm -hmm. to the content that participants are describing. But also, you know, all of us come in with a pair of glasses on with the shapes, the way we see the world. And so by kind of documenting that, mentioning that in the paper, that gives readers an opportunity to understand, okay, so hey, a gay white guy who's into BDSM. (laughs) Wrote this paper, right? He's the lead author on this paper. That's me. And so it it gives people an understanding of kind of what's the lived experience of this person? What are they, what baggage are they bringing in that is shaping the way that they're viewing this material? And so that's why we thought reflexivity statements were important. And then throughout the process, we kept journals on kind of our reactions to the interviews, how we felt, you know this made me feel really sad when this person was talking about this, or I felt like really amazed that that this is their recovery process. And we also met as a team to discuss our reactions just so we can like process it together and make sure that um, like if something was coming up in our personal life, right. We felt really connected for this one reason. Why is that happening? Mm -hmm. Um, And maybe like it allowed us to be a little bit more uh, objective instances where we felt really pulled into that interview. So some of these interviews, gosh, Justin, were just so evocative. Um, it almost felt like a therapy encounter, although that wasn't the purpose. Of course, um, But I was just really amazed by these participants who opened up in such detail. And that's a lot to carry sometimes as a researcher. So reflexivity gave us that space to discuss it, air it out, and then approach it in a way that was more systematic.
0: I suppose also it gives you the the, the, the the ability and the capacity to create the containers in which those conversations can happen, right?
1: Yes, I think so. I think it gives us, um, I, you know, in terms of creating the container, that's one reason we really came to this project with a sex-positive approach, this idea. Most of the time you hear a lot of sex ne- negativity in the world, but that's changing, right? So by having this sex-positive Uh, framework in mind it did kind of create this container where we knew we were going to be our our default assumption was sex is great it's Mm -hmm. safe it's fun and even people who've been traumatized have that view of sex or can access that Mm. and so with that frame in mind that that helped us understand the conversations and frame the way we were talking about sex
0: and also just the last bit about this before get into the results uh, i guess the how the way that you bring yourselves into it and the way that you uh we're we're kind of supporting each other around this makes it sound like a, a, an effective flow. So, you know, I've been um, boring my listeners for the past few weeks about rhizomes and assemblages. And it is like that, that you can't not be part of the research that you are, that, that, that you're undertaking. And so to acknowledge that also um, makes this a more robust paper as well. It just makes it, it it does make it kind of uh, it, it, to me, it, might, it it kind of comes across as um, you know, it, it it's clear it's a very thoughtful paper. It's really trying to get at what what is happening here, and 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 that applying that kind of curiosity. So having that curiosity to ourselves and everything around the project is um yeah. really interesting. I think.
1: Yeah. Uh, Thanks for naming that. Yeah, uh, qualitative researchers are often naming what's happening, yeah. even though these processes are are happening in quantitative. You know, your numbers papers. So. Um, Yeah. So thanks for catching that.
0: Let's, uh, let's get on to, um, let's get on to the results then. So, um, so first and foremost, uh, so, so you, so that, so you've done a lot of interviews, you've transcribed, and you go through and you've gone through and and for some of the themes that come out um, and so I'll just get us to go through the, and th- this paper is available to to read online, isn't it? Is it is open access. To this paper, is it?
1: Yeah, I, you know, if you go, I don't know if it's open access on the actual paper website, Taylor and Francis, but you can go to ResearchGate and look look for
0: the paper. That's where I found it. I'll put a link in the show notes anyway, dear listener. Yeah. But, um, so um, we'll kind of go. Uh, Go through the paper uh, uh, um, and pull out some of the some of the really interesting results so the first thing was that we found so you let's over let's talk about some of the the, the main themes that came up so you found that there okay. was like a, a cultural context appealing this really excellent diagram I'm just scrolling down to you found that there was a yeah. context appealing and then there were kind of five kind of overlapping circles um, which you kind of have in a diagram. This is great for a podcast, me describing a diagram. Um, yeah. <laughs> but uh, so you have um, reclaiming power, uh, restructuring the self, uh, repurposing behaviors, liberation through relationships, and redefining pain. And there are mm. lots of kind of sub um, kind of themes that were coming out as well. Yes. So, but the, but the, the, these are the main things that people would find that the participants were finding that uh that kink was doing for them but first and foremost let's talk about the the cultural context of healing so everyone who's taken part in the study has access to or is doing some kind of therapy um sometimes that therapy was a, is affirming from a, a kink affirmed kink affirming therapist or knowledgeable yes. therapist, but other times not can you you unpack that a bit for us, this cultural context of healing to begin with?
1: Yeah, so the idea here is this was the, you mentioned container, I think, earlier, right? So the cultural context of healing was the, you can think of it as the environment that these people were uh, describing. So with if a person who has gone through BD, who was into BDSM, who's gone through early abuse, is within this cultural context of healing, that's when we started to notice the other themes arise, such as restructuring the self. Redefining the pain. It's almost like that was the soil that allowed the flowers to bloom, if you will. So, this soil, this cultural context of healing provided the space for things to occur that were therapeutic. And the cultural context of healing was comprised of concurrent therapies. So, these were positive therapy experiences that really allowed the person to remember things that they learned in therapy, right? That my thoughts lead to my emotions, something very basic like that. Or that connecting is important, um, but they also described how having a kink aware counselor for some participants, not all of them, helped them understand their BDS and behaviors in the context of their trauma. You know, so for example, there was one participant who didn't really put two and two together. Right, uh, was not quite sure why hair pulling bothered her so much. Mm -hmm. And then through conversations with her therapist, she was able to realize like, Oh, Hey, (laughs) that's actually related to my abusive experience. And that's why I have such a reaction to my partner. It's not about my partner. It's about how I'm reacting to it. Mm -hmm. And so, um, and the the therapist was really kink aware because they were willing to go there. They weren't shaming. They didn't assume that this was necessarily going to be hair pulling was necessarily going to be re-traumatizing if the person did decide to engage with it. But there was also negative therapy experiences, right? That, sh- that shaped the way people, participants were thinking about their kink such, and that could lead to, there was one person who was afraid to even talk about their kink with their therapist, uh, cause they were, they were wondering if the backlash they experienced with, you know, people on dating apps would be the same backlash they got from their therapist. Mm-hmm. And to them, it just wasn't worth it. So. That leads to the second part, the second layer of the soil, if you will, which is the influence of stigma. So we know there's a lot of stigma around kink and BDSM, and that shaped the way people were thinking about their experiences and kind of actively working against the stigma that they had encountered or learned about the messages they received in life. Hmm. And also the, the kind of the final layer of the cultural context of healing, the final layer of the soil, right? is this idea of key community norms. So there's actually a lot of great community norms for people who are actively involved in the BDSM community. Mm. Participants describe that there's actually this culture of safety and healing, that people are super open in the BDSM community about talking about experiences that bother them and harm them in some way. Mm. And that there's specific community norms, such as safe words, debriefing, that, uh, that really promote some type of therapeutic work within a BDSM relationship Mm.
0: that kind of intentionality isn't it it's the that kind of um that we are doing something um different and um and making the implicit explicit uh which is the like a big difference between um kink and vanilla slash even like rough sex where you know I won't go into that, uh, but kink is very is very much kind of um, kink and BDSM. Very much, uh, yeah. Those, um, as we talked about on the on the show that I did with Meg John last year uh, about kink, where there are these norms in in uh, kink communities, um, mm-hmm. and so all of so for some participants, well, for all participants, that kind of soil was there. That was the context there, and obviously that's that. This is obviously going to be um, because of some of. Because of the participants that you find that 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 is going to be present there with the participants that you were working with, um, but let's let's now also move on to the to uh, reclaiming power. So people were the, the, there's lots of um, what I also like about the papers that you're quoting from the from the transcript. So um, you really get a sense of uh, what might be doing for folk. But a lot of people talking about how. In in many ways that they were having, they were reclaiming power for themselves. Can you uh, talk, talk about some of the some of the kinds of examples of this? Yeah, sure. So you know,
1: early abuse, as you can imagine, leaves people feeling disempowered. Right, I can't control my boundaries. I don't have. I can't say stop. My stop doesn't matter, and so. It's really important to reclaim power as part of your trauma recovery is what we found. And for some participants, this looked like setting boundaries, mm-hmm. right? BDS, because there were some strong BDSM norms that promoted boundary setting, right? The scene starts now, the scene ends here, right? Mm-hmm. You can stop it with your safe word, et cetera. People in our study were learning how to set boundaries for their first time. So we had one participant, for example, Odessa, who learned, in early abusive relationships that you weren't allowed to say no, no, didn't do anything, you know, just kind of hope for things to be over with and no remained a hard word for her to say throughout, you know, even today, as Mm -hmm. far as I know, but a safe word was different, right? A safe word didn't have this kind of script attached to it. Mm -hmm. And so the safe word allowed, not only was the safe word honored by her partner, but it was a different way of saying no, uh, that was respected. This also, you know, reclaiming power looked like something we called inversion. So Mm -hmm. what this means is that people kind of played with power to reclaim it. So we had one participant, (laughs) JB, who said being a dom was like stepping into myself for the first time. Mm -hmm. It's the ability to choose when, where, and why with no questions asked. And so this was really important for JB because as somebody who was abused, um, they didn't have that power to choose when, where, and why, (laughs) or who. And this, you know, reclaiming power also looked like regaining agency. And so about half of the participants were reporting a greater sense of autonomy that I can do something and it's going to be respected. Yeah. And, you know, one participant was talking about a lot of it, I think has to do with the fact that I, that there's a regain ability for me to regain enge- agency. And I, that was taken away from me when I was younger. And that's why kink is so appealing to me. I'm really embedded in it. Mm-hmm. And it makes me want to, I'm dominant in the bedroom and it makes me want to be a dominant and assertive in the rest of my life. And so there was, this was a way for people in our study to understand that, Hey, I can't, set boundaries, mm-hmm. step into myself and it be respected by others.
0: Mm. And if you can learn to do things in one aspect of your life, then suddenly you can start to do things in another aspect of your life. That's, you know, this is the, when we, there are many good reasons to draw lines between our sexual lives or our kink and BDSM lives and our and our non-sexual kink and BDSM lives. But it also if it's happening in one part of our lives that gives us the resources to be able to do that uh, elsewhere i suppose and again just i guess another couple of the uh, the norms of the kink community that might be worth just flagging up again because we've not mentioned them are things like yes no maybe lists and like inventories and things like that that also give a sense of um boundaries but also of possibilities of the kinds of things that we might actually want to do which also as uh, um which also give us agency as well won't it so it's um mm-hmm. uh and i guess also i suppose going beyond the the normative sexual scripts of vanilla sex uh, also means that people because people are actively choosing they're practicing actually in their agency and they're actually it's a thing that they are that they're doing and that sense of them doing right yeah
1: that's a good that's a great way to say it you know and kink it's very much about you have to say out loud, like this is what I'm into, this is what I won't do, yeah. And that's different than the scripts that many people have with the no sex, like oh, I've learned through movies, through stories over and over again what I'm supposed to do, yeah. I think it's very different, yeah.
0: yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and we're talking here about uh actual kink, not uh, not 50 Shades of Grey, where we're all kind of <laughs> the right. um, Christian gray needing you know, telepathically you know, understanding the subs needs and all of the right. happen Anyway. Right. So yeah, no tele- <laughs> telepathy <laughs> happening here. <laughs> okay. So, um, so it's really powerful already. You can kind of see dealers. Now also, but, um, Don't run away thinking we're prescribing this. We're going to talk about that at the end. But, you know, it's just really interesting and affirming and valuable to hear hear some of this. Um, There's also a sense for a lot of participants that it was uh, restructuring the self um, as well. Can you tell us a bit more about that too? Just their their relationship to themselves.
1: I can, yeah. So restructuring the self uh, concept, right? So this is the idea that Uh, So we all have internal characteristics about ourselves, right? The way we view ourselves uh, is one way, right? Our self-esteem is another kind of internal construct that psychologists talk about. And so this was a way through kink that people could change the way they were thinking about how they think about themselves, like Mm -hmm. their place in the world. And, you know, linking to this idea of power, one of the sub themes here was stepping into power. Mm -hmm. It allowed by participating in kink our participants noticed that their confidence and esteem was growing. Right. One participant, for example, was saying, I've spent so long not seeing myself. All right. Just acknowledging that I'm a being here and now, and that I can't acknowledge that um, I'm beautiful no matter what. Sure. And so that was uh, the kind of the main idea there. And by stepping into power, there was another participant who was able to kind of stand up to her abuser for the first time, you know, her mother, made fun of her weight constantly. And so this participant was going home for the holiday and was expecting, okay, here comes mom again. Mm -hmm. And so, but by, over time through kink, um, and actually this participant earlier in the interview was actually saying how many times she had to say no and set boundaries with people who were hitting on her on these kink apps, and she just was not going to go there. That really allowed her to think, hey, you know what? Um, I'm going to step up to mom and tell her, I'm not coming home if you're going to say anything about my weight. And so this was very different from how she was when she was younger, which was kind of be quiet, sit down, take it, and and not say much. Um, Another sub theme here was this idea of positive sexual self schemas. And so this the idea that sex is now enjoyable. Um, One person was really talking about how they saw themselves as an object for use That's something that they learned through early abuse. And by engaging in kink in a really positive way, they were able to switch that up and no longer see themselves as a person with autonomy and the ability to make choices versus something that something happens to. Um, There's also a lot of self-knowledge and insight in this area and a new narrative of self where people learned that they could be desirable and um, be wanted mm-hmm. and that not be a, a dangerous or scary thing. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, that's all really um, powerful stuff. Um, I should say at this point, dear listener, that we are on a zoom call with the obligatory cat. So uh it's a very cute cat. So if uh, it's my, the listeners are fine hearing, um, some background noise, but uh, if you do hear a noise, that we've got uh, what looks to be a very cute cat trying to chat with us about kink and BDSM. Yes, um, um, no
1: he shame is. It. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um,
0: so again, it is this kind of um, uh, it is this kind of um, having to say, being encouraged through um, the community norms and through literally how we how we do it because. You know, kink without consent, kink without um, explicitly, what we're talking about is, you know, is violence. It's non-consensual violence. So we have to be able to, or can be, uh, we have to be able to talk about what it is that we, uh, or find ways to communicate, not necessarily talk, but find ways to communicate um, uh, our wants. That that has these other aspects and other aspects of our lives. That the ability to be more active and to be more uh, be on the, the kind of uh, to be on the front foot with things and to take initiative is something that's kind of coming out there as well. Um, and so then, and the next theme that uh, was coming out was uh, repurposing behaviors. Uh, could you tell us a bit about that? Okay. So this is my favorite thing. Oh,
1: yeah. <laughs> uh, so repurposing behavior. This is the idea. So in trauma literature, trauma research, there's this idea of prolonged exposure and it's a evidence-based treatment where if you're afraid of something, instead of running away from it, you have to actually have to approach it. Mm -hmm. And by approaching it, you're going to feel less of the trauma reaction over time. Mm -hmm. And it was amazing to me that participants were describing something similar to prolonged exposure, which we called gradual exposure. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, overall, the idea of repurposing behavior is taking back um, a behavior and removing it from its abusive memory or traumatic memory context. And gradual exposure was kind of a sub theme. And the idea here is that You know, participants were describing how, okay, I have something that really bothers me. It's kind of a medium limit. And in BDSM, if you don't know, or kink, there's soft limits, things that you might try, and usually hard limits where I'm not going to go there no matter what. Mm -hmm. And so um, participants in this context of limits, there were participants who were describing like, okay, I had this one thing that was a limit for me, such as being whacked on the bottom with a paddle Mm -hmm. Um, that I didn't want to go to, but there were other things that I could kind of work my way up to such as my partner, maybe touching my bottom or my partner standing behind me. And by being in this nurturing relationship with somebody who respected my boundaries and I could say no, and all those good things, right. This cultural context of healing over time, participants were describing that things that used to be super, um, and they were limits because they were related to their abuse, right? The person didn't want their bottom touched because they had been raped um, in this case. And But over time, by being with a sexual partner, instead of having a paddle on the bottom, mm-hmm. elicit all these really horrible memories and negative emotional experiences, it that arousal, that effect of arousal, yeah. um, that negative traumatic avoidance intrusion that we associate with post-traumatic stress disorder, slowly started to go away, Um, which to me was just amazing that BDSM could promote that type of experience.
0: Um,
1: But it makes sense if you think about it, right? Because somebody has a limit that they're not going to go to. And then through maybe one day they want to try it if it's a soft limit. And um, it makes sense that you would want to try something with somebody you love and respect or at least hook up with very often. And that's what, that's what our um, participants were describing. And to me, that was just kind of the more, more striking findings of the study. Um,
0: yeah, I, th- I think it definitely makes sense. And I think there is even something about just being able to articulate, okay, this is a boundary and this is my thing. And that articulation even uh, allows us to pay attention to some of the softness around it, which is not to say that we should name our boundaries in order that we should always overcome them. But yeah, there is a difference between that and knowing that there's something that we really can't face and it just being put into a part of our brain, you know, being put away in the locker that we can never kind of, you know, access that kind of gentle curiosity to this is what it is. This is why it is. This is where it sits. And at the moment I never want to do it. Uh, Even that kind of sometimes I think can, can make, uh, uh, can at least make things kind of uh, seem perhaps smaller or containable or, or manageable and that kind of, the shifting attention to it and taking away some of the like the some of the ancillary fear around that um mm-hmm. seems to just seems to make sense there. Um, um yeah really and you know
1: the thing stuff. that the thing that comes to my mind too as you're talking about this is in my view there's a difference between a chosen boundary and a given boundary. Mm. <laughs> and a lot of the times the boundaries that were given but through abuse were because I can't do this because I'm so scared and I can't handle the trauma response that I'm having versus which is a hard boundary a given boundary versus a chosen boundary i'm not into that right i'm not into that because i'm not into that right um so in gradual exposure we're really working with the given boundaries the boundaries that were maybe the person would be into if that trauma context wasn't there Hmm.
0: and also i guess back well boundaries are co created as well aren't they so within this you know within this rich soil um the the we'll talk about relationships in a second but it, it is kind of um uh uh it, it it is kind of making me think of you know how you know when we when we when we articulate a boundary and we say this is the thing for me and the other person's like cool i get that that's the thing and then you're both kind of it's almost as if you're kind of like two neighbors either side of the fence both looking after either side of the fence if that kind of makes right. sense rather than yeah you negotiate
1: to... it yes yeah. right
0: Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And then and then you can both kind of pay careful attention to it, which I think is, uh, which is really important. So, but okay, so talking about relationships, let's talk about liberation through relationships. So something about the actual, you refer to it as the as the dyad, but something about the actual relationships that are formed um, through BDSM, because we're not talking about somebody necessarily, we, we are talking about relationships here, aren't we? And that was the thing that was kind of coming up, um, either dominant submissive relationships or, or play partners or whatever we we were talking about relationships here rather than a kind of a uh, a set of practices that people were experiencing from various people.
1: Right, exactly. Like it's not you can't divorce the kink behavior from the relationship for at least in this context in a. You know, healing, transformative, coping context, The relationship really has to be there because our participants were had experienced interpersonal trauma, sexual abuse, physical abuse, of mm. some type of trauma from another person. So it makes sense that you know, in order to recover from that, you have to th- do that through relationship. Mm. And we found that that was the case for uh, the majority of our participants. Nineteen out of twenty really emphasized the importance of their relationship. And many of them were talking about how they had a partner um, or a couple of partners that really provided that space for them to explore these other things we're talking about, right? Gradual exposure, restructuring Mm -hmm. the self. It was by having a partner who was really nurturing and respectful and could allow somebody to develop trust Mm -hmm. in in a sexual context that was important for them. Mm -hmm. And so in addition to that, there's this idea of connectedness, right? That by being in relationship, not only do you have a community to rely on, which is, you know, you have actually help and support people, which is something maybe you didn't have when you were younger. Mm -hmm. Um, But you also learn how to develop honesty and take chances. Whereas maybe being honest before could have got you in an abusive situation, right? Speaking up for yourself, um, might have been associated with physical violence. Um, but this was not the case when healthy connection was happening. Um, but in addition to that, something that we found pretty interesting is that people in our study were learning how to have relationships, how to form connection and what that looked like for them. Something we called relational competence, right? Knowing what it looks like to communicate your wants, needs, and desires. Um, maybe going against your tendency to want to be shy and putting yourself out there in the BDSM community uh, because it was a safe space for these folks. Um, So learning, not only did you experience the healing power of being in the relationship, but there were specific skills that people were learning um, that were structured by the BDSM community on how to have relationships.
0: Yeah. 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 it, all of this kind of strikes me as well. Uh, something I don't think we've re- we've really mentioned yet, which I think kind of links to also the repurposing behaviors is the, you know, just what what kink can do. I mean, sex can do this too, but um, kink can ha- and you talk about this in the paper can have this like uh, uh, um huge effect on our stress levels. It can completely change our state of consciousness. It can, you know, we can. You know, I've been talking about uh, jouissance uh, recently, which is where we have this kind of overwhelming sense of pleasure. But it, but it 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 can take us into very different headspaces, can't it? You know, you we can yeah. literally start in one space, and also with, with what kink can do is we can also say this is the kind of headspace I want to go into. These are the kinds of things that you know, and then and, they, and then you co-create that with the person you're doing it with. And so to be able to do all of that. However, casual or serious the relationship, you know, capital R relationship, that connectedness um, is, uh, a cr- is a crucial part of it. You need the connectedness to do it, but also doing it gives you the connectedness as well, doesn't it? Right. Yeah, it's bidirectional in that way. Right. Yeah. It goes both ways. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a good point.
0: And uh, dear listener, as well, it makes me. It reminds me of the conversation that we had with Tina Sicker about her excellent book, uh, Sex, Consent, and Justice, where we talk about um, her redefinition of consent as uh, oh, I'm going to forget the whole phrase now, uh, um, and a, a care and pleasure, care and pleasure centered ethic of embodied sexual, embodied something of the sexual Other Tina, if you're listening to this, I'm so sorry. Um, but, uh, uh, you know, so it's like, but we're talking about this kind of thing, aren't we? That there isn't, mm. it's ethic and pleasure and care-centered. Um, and yes. the, and it's, in about, it's about embodiment and sexual autonomy, all of these things. This is, you know, what consent is, I think, but this mm. is really key to all of this.
1: Yeah, that's the first. Mm-hmm.
0: And I guess the last theme is just redefining pain. Um, which um, probably the shortest section in the paper, wasn't it? But but I guess it kind of explains itself, but a, a lot of people have experienced actual physical pain and that and this was a way of um, them re- yeah, redefining it.
1: Yeah. Yeah, you can imagine what that is, yeah. right? You said it really well there, Justin. Um, somebody has pain and pain was scary and now, um, Pain is actually a source of pleasure in BDSM, right? Mm-hmm. You can enjoy pain. I think the most striking thing about this that's kind of buried away in this paragraph in the paper is this quote from Natalie, um, who was describing, I will never forget this interview who is describing really intense pain and what she's into in terms of BDSM, um, but after all that, this, you know, couple of minutes of talking about the pain that she likes, she was like, but you know, Corey, it's not about the pain. It's about what happens after it's about that. I can care for my pain. I can stop my pain. And um, it's about caring about my pain that really helps me heal, which to me was um, you kind of don't hear that in, in BDSM where you think pain is just this you know, masochistic um, it could be pleasure or it can um, it release endorphins or there's something else associated with it. You think about pain, the experience of pain, mm. but not the aftermath of pain. Although self-care and uh, debriefing are part of BDSM. Mm. I just think Natalie really said that um, in a really remarkable way in terms of her healing process. Um, and it was even, we talked about co-creation, a space for Natalie to heal with her partner, right? Allow her partner to tend to her... Uh, scrapes and bruises that she got, th- con- you know, through consent in this BDSM space. Um, so it was a really tender, bringing together moment.
0: Yeah, that's amazing. Mm-hmm. I guess that it is the the difference between pain as like a, a negative affect, and and pain as a a set of sensations that are essentially the same sensations, but they have a different affect because of the different yeah. contexts in which it's happening. Um, that we are literally affected differently by it um exactly yes um so i mean this is all really quite moving stuff as well i I really encourage you to read it even if you're not really into reading academic papers dear listener um a lot of the when you get to the actual results part because we're seeing um so many quotes from the participants it's it's really quite moving um and it's potentially really powerful and valuable isn't it but we're also not prescribing this are we like you know we're, 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 we're and you've and in in your discussion uh and in and in, in the implications of the paper section you're really really careful about this as well it's you know what we're saying is, is this is what is is happening for these participants the, the question is more kind of what might kink do uh, uh what might or what might therapeutic kink do and that's that's the kind right. of thing that we're on. But we're not saying if you've experienced trauma, which is or, uh, sexual abuse, which is a hell of a lot of people, lot um, of people yeah. then we're not saying, you know, head out to, you know, join that life, head out to your local munch, yes.
1: <laughs> Right. Go to your doctor. Can I get that prescription? For you? <laughs> um, no, but what, what the clinical implications are is that if you're a therapist or if you are somebody who's looking to for therapy, and you might be into BDSM and you might've experienced trauma, you know, this is a good place for therapists to become kink aware, right? Because we know that when participants were, had a therapist who was not going to be shaming them about kink, who knew what a safe word was, who knew about boundaries, who was kind of who who who's with it in a way Hmm. that therapist could then use their therapeutic skills that they're trained in and create a space that the person could dive deeper into what kink looked like in terms of healing and coping. Mm-hmm. And so, yes, we're not prescribing it, but a therapist actually has a lot of, can use this paper to draw a lot of insights to help the client who's already kind of in this headspace mm-hmm. to explore it deeper and to kind of make their own gains. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, which is kind of the goal of therapy. That We talked about translating behaviors to other spaces. Your therapist is going to want you to learn something in therapy and practice it in your real life. Right. Um, so, so yeah, I, I love that you mentioned we're not prescribing kink because we were worried that that might be something that um, people were wondering with this paper, is that if that's where we were going to advocate, yeah. which is not the case. No, and certainly,
0: um, yeah, we wouldn't, we wouldn't. Yeah. Because also, and again, this is in the context of somebody writing to me, asking me about um uh, asking me about the implications of um, him being involved in kink with people who are specifically saying, I want this to be therapeutic because I've experienced you know, abuse. That There has to be, you know, there are several layers of consent we need to go through, both self-consent and consent with others in order to get yes. to the point where this can be happening. And, yeah, we need all of those uh, and that the cultural context of healing to be in place. Um, exactly. But, you know, if you are doing kink, uh, if, if kink is, some, you know, which... Uh, might actually be as i was saying before might actually be most of us at some point in our lives it might just be something to consider it might be something to be a bit curious about pay attention to and also um if you are seeking out therapy i would or I, I just don't no matter what the, the the what it is you want therapy about i'd inevitably say try and find someone who's kink aware um oh, yes. just, it might come up but also generally speaking i think that kink People who are trained, who have been interested enough in getting training about kink, are probably pretty cool uh, about other aspects I would agree, of relationships, yeah. right? <laughs> I mean, yeah. um, mm-hmm. Cool. Well, Corey, um, was there anything else that uh, that I haven't asked you about that that um, that you wanted to bring up about the paper?
1: No, I think you know you covered all of it, Justin. Uh, thanks so much for having me on and taking oh. some time to read the paper. Yeah, I agree that if folks want to the paper then go to researche.net mm-hmm. and just type in the paper's name or type in curative kink and yeah. you should be able to find it
0: well thank you so much uh Corey, and also um your co-authors as well uh because uh you know what a great interesting paper and you know uh, wasn't that an interesting interview uh also that was Corey's first ever podcast like they've got podcast voice they're so good at this anyway um so thanks so much to Corey and their colleagues for writing such a fantastic paper again there'll be a second part to this episode next week where i draw on some of this where um in answering my question about this kind of thing um and if you're interested in supporting the show again please uh, if you could head, head over to patreon.com forward slash culture sex relationships and uh, sign up for early access to all these uh, things and also bonus material i've been reading the through the doing readings from the book that meg john and i wrote uh enjoy sex how when and if you want to and planning on doing some more exclusive um shows on there as well it's also access to a discord server where you can discuss the show and chat with other folk fans of the show also if that doesn't take your fancy you can also head over to my website justinhancock.co.uk where you can see all of the different projects that i do uh see all of the the other books that I've written as well and places where you can buy those and also you could also book a one-to-one session with me I started uh, doing uh, one-to-one advice about sex and relationships you might just want to book one or two sessions if there's anything you want to kind of chat about get my take on or advice or some specific education about Uh, and also I've started doing solution focused coaching uh, that's something I've been training in over the last few months. So, if you want to have some um, kind of solution focused life coaching type things, uh, we can uh, have a chat about that. Again, that's only like, might only be one or two sessions. And uh, many people find it's really useful just after one or two sessions. So, head over to justinhancock.co.uk and find out more. All right, then. See you next time. Bye, then. Bye. See you later. All right. Yeah. Okay. All right, then. Bye. Try, try, then. Bye.